Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Dee Ann Warner grew up in Tecumseh, Michigan. Dee had many friends and was described as confident, outgoing, well-liked, and very bubbly. At one point, Dee got married and the couple would have four children together. Dee loved being a mother and was very much devoted to her children. Dee was known to decorate her home extensively for Christmas and was always dolled up with hair and makeup always on point. Dee and her husband would eventually divorce, and Dee would go on to remarry another local man by the name of Dale Warner. Together, they would run agriculture and trucking companies, and in 2011, they had a daughter. In 2021, Dee and Dale were living on their agriculture property on Mugner Road in Tipton, Michigan. Dee was the sole owner of her own trucking company, DDW Investments, and a few different LLCs, and she and Dale also owned War Ag Farms. Dee was a hardworking businesswoman, but she and Dale didn't see eye to eye when it came to their businesses. It was also known that Dale's family was not fond of Dee, and this didn't help their already rocky marriage. On Saturday, April 24, 2021, Dee spent the day speaking to her loved ones about a decision she had made. Dee planned to tell Dale that she was going to divorce him and wanted to sell their businesses. Beforehand, she spent the day crying, vomiting, suffering from a migraine, arguing with Dale, and being upset. At 7.42 p.m. the night of April 24th, Dee's friend, Amy Alexander, picked up their nine-year-old daughter. She wanted to have her stay the night with them because she knew she and Dale would be fighting all night as they had been all day. This would be the last time Amy would ever see Dee again. When Dale arrived back home at 7 p.m., the arguing intensified. At 10.42 p.m., Dee's friend sent her a text to see how things were going. A half hour later, the friend received a text back that said K, which was unusual for Dee. Soon after, her iPhone switched from being on a Wi-Fi network to a cellular network as if she had left their home. Cell phone records show that at around 2.30 a.m., Dee's phone and Apple Watch went dead. Witnesses would later say that they saw the house lights on all night. Dale's electronic trail would show that he left the house after 3 a.m. and returned at 4.30 a.m. He was at his father's house at 3.55 a.m., getting the keys to the chemical and equipment storage area. However, Dale would claim he was asleep during this time. The next morning, around 9.30 a.m., one of Dee's daughters, 
her boyfriend, and two grandchildren stopped by for their Sunday breakfast as they did every Sunday. Strangely, no one was home. Dee's vehicles were there, and Dale was spreading fertilizer in the field. Dale said he had left the house that morning, but when he returned home, Dee was gone. At 11 a.m., a search began for Dee. At some point, Dale pulled Dee's $50,000 wedding ring out of his pocket and said he found it on his desk in his office after she left. However, the office had video surveillance showing that Dale never even went into the office that morning. Dale described the fight he and Dee had that night as the worst they'd ever had. But later, he would change his story and say that he and Dee had actually made up the night before and were no longer fighting. Dale said that after the fight, Dee laid down on the living room floor and he gave her a back massage until she fell asleep. Then he moved her to the couch, where she remained sleeping at 6 a.m. when he left the house to spray fertilizer on the farm fields. However, when he left the house, he forgot to feed their dogs and take his Leatherman multi-tool with him, which was described as unusual for him. While Dale said he left the house at 6 a.m., it was later determined that he didn't arrive at the liquid fertilizer storage until 7.30 a.m. The night before, at 8.34 p.m., Dale can be seen on video surveillance in the cold, wearing shorts and cowboy boots, chasing his son off the property. Was there something he didn't want him to see? Dee's friends and family knew something was wrong and that Dale's story wasn't adding up. Dale never reported Dee missing to the police, but when her adult children did, they were strangely advised to keep the disappearance quiet for two weeks. Dee's purse and cell phone were the only items missing. Her vehicles, credit cards, and a large amount of cash were left behind. Another thing is that not only Dee's Cadillac Escalade was left behind, but also her Hummer. The Hummer had been parked at the back door for a month before she went missing because she had been driving the Escalade. But on the morning of Dee's disappearance, the Hummer was strangely moved over by the office building by a longer route around the house than the more direct route between the home and office to avoid video cameras. There were also tracks from a tractor with a front-end loader attachment next to the Hummer before the Hummer was returned to its original spot. It was strangely cleaned shortly after. Dale also changed the password to the security cameras on April 26 and secretly met with someone to learn how to operate the cameras. When the police came to search the Warner's property for Dee, Dale initially let them look around, but after an hour, made them leave. Authorities began to question Dale, but he immediately lawyered up. He later allowed Dee's Cadillac Escalade to be repossessed, transferred assets from Dee's trucking business, and then hired a man with a criminal history of embezzlement to handle the business finances. Also, because most of the Warner's businesses were a 50-50 partnership, Dale produced a power of attorney document dated 2014, but a handwriting expert would determine that Dee's signature was forged. A motive in the case could be that Dee was a 100% shareholder and owner of her trucking company, DDW Investments, supporting Dale's failing businesses, which was in excess of a million dollars owed by War Ag Farms, which were owned 50% each by Dale and Dee. In other words, Dee's business supported all the farm businesses, 
so a divorce would have left Dell in a severe financial crisis. Dell said that Dee had often talked about running away to Mexico or Jamaica. However, while Dee was planning to get away, she had no plans to go to Mexico or Jamaica as Dell has suggested. Her plan was to purchase a lake house about five miles away from the Hardy farm. Although Dee tried to hide her attempt to get away from Dale, he kept tabs on everything she did, attempted to control her environment as much as he could, and likely found out about her plan. This was a woman who adored her five kids and grandkids. Her youngest daughter was also only nine years old. Friends and family said she would have never left her daughter with Dale and run off. In an attempt to further credit his story, Dale produced a letter from her nightstand that Dee had written. In this note, she talked about getting away and making big changes in her life. But that letter had been seen several years earlier, so it was nothing new. In the letter, Dee never spoke about hurting herself or leaving her family without any trace and never talked about ceasing all contact with her family. Dale attempted to make it appear that the letter was written recently and was proof that she had left. Dale also claimed that he had her own surveillance video leaving the home with two suitcases. However, he could never produce this video. Law enforcement brought in search dogs and helicopters to help search the farm. Dale had allegedly prevented the police from searching the fertilizer storage barn, claiming the toxins would kill their dogs. Also, the police allegedly asked Dale to see his iPad, but he was unable to open it because he claimed his fingerprints had been burned away by fertilizer. Investigators were never able to find Dee in the areas they were allowed to search. Interestingly, Dale's father owns a huge warehouse with numerous large barrels, and a witness had placed Dale there in the middle of the night around the time Dee went missing. A couple of months after Dee went missing, authorities performed a large dig on the Warner property. Yet, they didn't find anything, and they claimed they didn't necessarily have a tip leading them to that spot. If they didn't have a tip, how did they choose that one spot on a farm of over 3,000 acres? Private investigator Billy Little Jr. was hired to investigate the case and was able to uncover some interesting details. First, on the night of her disappearance, Dale left the house around 3 a.m. to go to his father's house, where he was looking for digging equipment. At 3.30 a.m., Todd Neerink arrives at the farm, takes a load of lime to a lime pit at Burns Harbor and Annan, and dumps it in there. He then goes another 50 miles or so to a wastewater treatment plant to pick up compost for fertilizer before driving back home. He strangely didn't log the required electronic log under his name, but another person instead. Although Dale said he didn't leave the house until 6 a.m., Billy found proof that Dale left the house at 3 a.m. and returned at 4.30 a.m. However, according to Dale, Dee was asleep on the living room couch at 6 a.m. the next morning when he woke up and left the house. Aside from the marital problems, the private investigator also uncovered some interesting business dealings that were going on behind the scenes, which raised even more concerns about Dee's disappearance. On August 9, 2021, with Dee still missing, Dale created a new business titled DDW Transportation, 
similar to her company, DDW Investments. He then illegally transferred her assets into his newly formed company, allowing him to sell her business using an alleged forged power of attorney. After loading her business with debts, he took all the assets and created a new trucking company. He then sold it to Laidlaw Transportation. The sale beneficiaries were none other than Dale Warner and his friend Todd Neerink. Neerink was an employee of Laidlaw Transportation and was strangely at the Warner residence the night Dee went missing. In addition, he and Dee had argued about the company's future. Neerink was also heard on audio saying that Dee was in Arizona, but Dell claims she was in Mexico or Jamaica, so which is it? Dell's attorney alleges that by pulling the historical data of Dell's Apple Watch, you can see his heart rate remained steady throughout the night, not once spiking. It also shows no indication of heavy breathing or exertion at any time during the night. But since the watch was not synced with his phone, that claim would be invalid. On August 9, 2022, the Michigan State Police announced it was taking over the investigation of Dee's disappearance at the request of the Lenaway County Sheriff's Office. On October 23, 2022, the private investigator, Billy Little Jr., he said if there wasn't an arrest by December 1, 2022, he would drop some serious information in December and people would be shocked when they heard what was happening. During the latest live stream, Billy unloaded on the business associates of Dale and even law enforcement, Detective Kevin Greca of the Lenaway County Sheriff's Office in particular. Billy alleges that Greca had been dating the first cousin of Todd Neerink, a close associate of Dale. If true, it's a conflict of interest that some believe shouldn't go unaddressed. Billy claims Dee was physically abused by her husband on multiple occasions leading up to her disappearance and that she was planning her escape from him when she disappeared. Billy highlighted several suspicious circumstances of the disappearance, including Dale's timeline of events not adding up and the couple's home security camera video not showing Dee leave the house. Dee's daughter, Raquel, has filed a petition with the Lenaway County Probate Court asking that a jury be impaneled to consider whether her mother can be declared legally dead. The filing also claims that since Dee's disappearance, Dale has used power of attorney to take out loans against his wife's property and that her assets are being depleted. Many believe they know what happened to Dee that night as obvious signs indicate one likely answer. Dale and Dee fought he got carried away and killed Dee in the heat of the moment. In 2021, a guardian ad litem was assigned to the case in an attempt to interview Dale and Dee's young daughter. Since then, Dale has given many excuses and ignored the judge's orders to bring his daughter in for the interview. This has led to the judge filing multiple criminal contempt charges against Dale. At this time, the judge has set a new date of January 23, 2023. As of December 2022, Dee has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Echo Michelle Lloyd was born on May 23, 1972. She graduated from Pleasant Hill High School and was a lifelong resident of Pleasant Hill, Missouri. 
In 2019, Echo moved to the rural community of Edwards, Missouri, after she and her husband mutually separated. Echo, who was close to her daughter Kelsey and grandchildren, was described as having a kind-hearted spirit who always saw the best in others. She had a love for art and the outdoors as well. At the age of 47, Echo was a mother of four children, Kelsey, Casey, Caitlin, and Kylie, and three grandchildren. She lived alone in a house on a 10-acre property near a lake and spent time renovating the house and working on various home projects. However, her friends and family started to notice a major issue. Echo had a bizarre relationship with her neighbor, Josh Smith, who was living with his grandfather. Josh allegedly had an obsessive infatuation with Echo and was known to take advantage of Echo's kind and gentle nature. He repeatedly showed up on her property and would even enter her home without permission at times. Around Christmas 2019, Echo wrote Josh a letter stating that she wanted to spend time with her family in privacy. Kelsey also confronted Josh about not respecting boundaries, but nothing changed despite the pleas for privacy. Echo was not a confrontational person and tried her best to be polite and not cause a disturbance between her and her neighbor. A week or two before Mother's Day weekend, Echo, frustrated with the situation, went over to her daughter Kelsey's house to stay the night and try to figure out a solution. Then in the morning, both of them were going to confront Josh again and demand her keys and second phone back. According to Kelsey, Echo had let Josh basically take over her house, car, and money. After an emotional discussion with her daughter, Echo decided to leave Kelsey's house early. She was heading home to demand that he stay away from her house and things once and for all. On the evening of May 9, 2020, the day before Mother's Day, Kelsey spoke to her mother on the phone for the last time. The next day, Mother's Day, Kelsey stopped by her mother's house to wish her a happy Mother's Day. But her mother was not home and her car was nowhere to be found. Also missing were her keys, cell phone, and medications. Her pistol, which she always kept on her, was strangely found outside the home. Kelsey left flowers and a Mother's Day card on the back porch with a note asking her mother to call her. Kelsey would later find out that her mother had left the house on Mother's Day to run some errands. Echo was seen on video surveillance at Walmart driving her car with Josh in it, something they frequently did. Also, a Walmart receipt dated May 10th was found and had a note written on it by Echo. That same day, an employee of Dollar General store in Warsaw, Missouri, claims to have seen Echo there with a group of people. However, those people have allegedly never been identified. For the next five days, Kelsey attempted to contact her mother, but all calls went straight to voicemail. Meanwhile, Kelsey grew even more concerned and returned to her mother's house. This time, her car was parked in the driveway with locked doors. Kelsey then went to the neighbor's house, banged on the door, and asked for a key to the house. However, she was told that Echo had already come by and demanded her extra keys from them. In a prior conversation, Echo mentioned to Kelsey that the outside pane of her windows was broken. As a result, the inside pane was within reach and unlocked, so she crawled through. Inside, she would find Echo's cigarettes and a lighter on a nightstand in her bedroom, something she never left home without. 
Her purse and wallet containing her ID and some cash were found on the floor. Echo's cell phone, car keys, and personal firearm were gone. The house had a pile of trash and moldy food lying around. This was shocking because Echo was adamant about keeping her home clean and in order at all times. The air conditioner was also on full blast. With Echo nowhere to be found, Kelsey reported her missing. Some people believe that there was some altercation between Echo and Josh after returning home from Walmart on May 10th, and he did something to her. It's possible that Echo had gone inside to get her gun, and when she came back outside, that's where the altercation took place. This might explain why the gun was found outside the home. Echo was known to venture into the heavily wooded areas near her home to go mushroom hunting. But much of those lands are privately owned and inaccessible to those searching for her. There are about 13,000 acres of land, so to help with this task, a Facebook page was created titled Hearts on the Hunt for Echo Michelle Lloyd, so people can network and look together for answers. Echo's estranged husband was initially looked at, but was quickly cleared as a suspect. In fact, the couple didn't have a tumultuous separation. However, as of December 2022, Echo has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Hattie Gertrude Brown was born on September 21, 1960, and was one of 11 siblings and graduated from Halifax County High School in Halifax, Virginia. At the age of 48, she was an Army veteran who served in Desert Storm in 1991. She was the first female in her unit to attend airborne school in North Carolina and the first female in her unit to earn her air assault badge. In 1998, she retired with the rank of Sergeant First Class to help her siblings take care of their elderly mother. On May 16, 2009, Hattie gave her nephew, Derek Brown, a ride from the Sheets gas station at Route 501 and Route 58 in Halifax. Video surveillance showed Hattie and her nephew Derek in her car at the gas station at 2.33 a.m. Derek claims that Hattie dropped him off at a party and was last seen sitting in her car idling outside the party. After this, Hattie basically vanished into thin air and was never seen again. Two months later, her brown 2003 Volkswagen Jetta was found abandoned and burned behind a barn in a field 15 miles from the gas station. Authorities suspected only a local would know about that location. After her car was located, police publicly named Derek as a suspect in his aunt's disappearance. Derek has a prior criminal record for breaking and entering, destroying property, and possession of burglary tools. While Derek remains a suspect, he has never been charged in her case. Then in 2013, Hattie's brother, 61-year-old James Brown Jr., vanished from Cover, Virginia. He was last seen walking near Neal's Corner Road in Cover on November 28, 2013. Authorities do not believe their cases are connected. According to the Gazette Virginian, three of Hattie's siblings have died since she disappeared. As of December 2022, Hattie has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Joanne Vanessa Mason was born in 1964. 
At the age of 19, she was living in the 200 block of Buena Vista Street in Highland Park, Michigan. Joanne was a college student with a four-year-old son named Laron. She had ended a relationship with an abusive boyfriend who had once kidnapped and beat her, putting her in the hospital. Not long after the breakup, on April 25, 1983, she left home with a friend to walk to get some items at a corner store at Hamilton and Glendale Avenues. According to the friend, Joanne's ex-boyfriend and some other men drove up in a car. The ex-boyfriend got out and Joanne walked down Glendale Avenue with him. Her mother, Charlie Mason, became concerned as it got dark and her daughter had not returned home. Joanne's niece, Jaquela, who was only three years old at the time of her aunt's disappearance, is still searching for answers. Upon her request, the Highland Park Police Department has reopened Joanne's case. However, whatever work may have been done decades ago is also a mystery. Many files have been lost over the years, one of which was Joanne's. According to the detective, they are searching for people on the street who may have been around at the time of Joanne's disappearance. They are also interested in speaking to the family and friends of Joanne's ex-boyfriend. The ex-boyfriend, who police say is a potential suspect, has since died. After Joanne vanished, her mom, Charlie, eventually got custody of Laron. As a result, Joanne now has five grandchildren and three great-grandchildren. Her loved ones are still desperate for answers, but as of December 2022, Joanne has never been found and this case remains unsolved. At the age of 54, Sandra Crispo had recently moved to 47 Spofford Avenue in Hanson, Massachusetts from Quincy. She wanted to be closer to her grandchildren and babysit them for her daughter, Lena McMahon. Another reason for the move was Sandra had been living with her father when he passed away. The house was too large for just her, so she moved out and bought the home in Hanson. Meanwhile, her siblings began fighting over their father's will. On August 7, 2019, Sandra was babysitting her three grandkids, as she often did, when she noticed her car acting up. That afternoon, Sandra's son-in-law, Tim McMahon, helped Sandra drop her car off at a mechanic and gave her a ride. Before being dropped off at home, she was seen on CCTV footage inside a local Cumberland Farms store buying cigarettes. Police have CCTV footage of Sandra exiting Tim's truck, entering the store, buying cigarettes, and then leaving again. That is the last known confirmed sighting of her. Tim, along with her grandchildren, gave her a ride back home. They told her they loved her and would see her tomorrow. The next day, August 8, the mechanic couldn't reach Sandra on her home phone, and she didn't have a cell phone or internet. So he called her daughter, Lena, to discuss needing more parts. When she received the call, Lena had the day off and was enjoying the day at the beach with her sons. She tried to call her mother to tell her the news about the car, but she also couldn't get through. She found this very strange because her mother didn't have a vehicle to leave and she couldn't think of any reason her mother wouldn't answer the phone. The next morning, Lena went to the house to check on her and drop her sons off for Sandra to babysit, but she had an eerie feeling. Her mother didn't open the door as usual and the back door was unlocked. 
The lights and air conditioning were on, and Sandra's beloved dog was in the living room looking scared and not acting excited to see her as he usually did. He was also out of food and water, which her mother would have never let happen. However, there was no sign of Sandra, and her shoes and purse were gone. There were even slices of fresh watermelon in the fridge that Sandra had cut up for her grandson's visit that day. Sandra has no history of depression or suicidal ideations, is not on any medications, and is not the type to up and leave. She is described by those who know and love her as a quiet homebody with close ties to her family and very few friends. She lived a simple life without a cell phone, debit card, or computer. Her son-in-law and daughter were cleared as suspects, and her case quickly went cold. The Hanson police conducted numerous searches of the area using drones, canines, both civilian and police, as well as officers on foot and ATVs. In addition, the nearby woods were searched, officers went door-to-door talking to neighbors, and surveillance video was reviewed. Hanson police initially claimed that there were no signs of foul play in the case, indicating in their opinion that Sandra had left the home of her own free will. However, Lena begs to differ. She believes there were signs of a possible struggle in the home. She suggested the bed seemed to have been moved somehow, among other clues. After two months of stagnation, Lena requested the Massachusetts State Police to take over the case. They returned to the home on Spofford Avenue, searching for new evidence and taking more samples. Sandra was last known to have been wearing a tank top, capri-style pants, and slip-on shoes, the same outfit seen in the surveillance footage from Cumberland Farms. Since the clothes were not found in her home among her possessions, it's likely she was wearing them when she disappeared. This also indicates that whatever happened to Sandra occurred the evening of Wednesday, August 7th, after 5 p.m., Her siblings have allegedly never helped in any of the searches for their sister or even asked how they could help. It's also possible that a family member thought Sandra had money stashed away in the house. Was Sandra harmed by a random attacker or was a family member involved regarding anger over their father's assets in the wheel? Let me know your thoughts in the comments below. As of December 2022, Sandra has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.